Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is someone who typically of patients with rare or unusual conditions waited many years for the diagnosis to be made. She lives with narcolepsy. Once the treatment was started, her life improved dramatically. As she says, That's when I actually realized how bad it had gotten. It was a few months into starting treatment. I was in the library one night around 9 p.m. And I just remember looking around me and realizing I was still awake and it was 9 p.m. And I just started crying because it was only then, like with my head that was working and, you know, mental connections were just happening. I could remember what I read. And that's when I thought, oh my God, I didn't remember what wakefulness felt like. It had been so long. In her own words, this is the story of Julie Flygar. Julie, I'm delighted that you've taken the time to speak with me today. And I want to start in our conversation with where this whole journey began for you. And I remember hearing you say that at 24 or thereabouts, you woke up in a car park wondering how you got there. Tell us the story. How did it start and how was the diagnosis made? Thank you so much for having me. And I was in law school at this point. I was finishing my first year of law school and it was the uh, week of exams or the week before exams where all you had to do was study. You don't have to do much, just study. So I had gotten a full night's sleep. I knew by this point I was a good sleeper. So I probably got nine or 10 hours of sleep at night and I got up in the morning made my oatmeal, had coffee, and went to drive to law school to study in the library. And so it was about a 15-minute drive down the road in Boston from Fenway to Newton. And it's one mile on the highway, you know, so uh, one exit. So I got off the exit and I felt like a little bit tired. But at this point, I'm just like about two miles from the law school. And so I just remember thinking, just get there. And... The next thing I remember is waking up in that parking lot. My car was parked. My seat was reclined. I was totally fine, but I didn't remember getting there, right? So when you like look back and you can remember pictures in your head of like pulling into school and choosing a parking spot, like I couldn't remember any of that. And so I was glad that I was safe, but like that really, really scared me. And that was really the moment that I thought maybe I might have a sleep problem. Because leading up to this, I had made so many different excuses. Uh, this, you know, that I uh, maybe I wasn't a morning person, or maybe I wasn't a night owl that I couldn't stay up late and study. Sometimes when I'd be tired in law school, I would think I haven't had enough caffeine. And then, and then I heard a different theory that maybe when you have too much caffeine, you get tired. So I had uh, probably been struggling for much longer than I realized. But at least at that point, I thought, maybe I have a sleep problem. I don't really know much about sleep problems, but I decided to seek help as soon as I finished exams. So that condition you're describing is called narcolepsy. Is that right? Well, yes. So I had a few different things happening at the same time. This, where I was feeling, you know, sleepy when I was studying or driving. And then also at other times, my knees were buckling when I was laughing. And I and as soon as I felt that sensation, I knew something was strange. I'd been asking doctors about that and friends and anyone that would listen. I'd check the internet. Um, 
it was the strangest sensation of like, as almost if someone poked behind my knees when I laughed, but like no one had poked my behind my knees. And so I had that going on. So actually when I did go to a primary care doctor at my school, I brought up these two different issues. I first said, I think I might have a sleep disorder. And the doctor asked me about that, you know, why I thought that. And I explained that I was having trouble studying and driving. And she said that, well, everyone gets tired when they drive sometimes. Like even she has to pull over for a coffee. So maybe that was like normal. And I really didn't know how to compare her sleepiness to mine to know if, you know, mine was normal or not. There was just like a slight, you know, voice inside me that thought, I don't think that's the same thing I'm talking about, but I really wasn't sure. And then I brought up the second issue of my knees buckling with laughter. And she thought that could be something, but I might have to get used to it. But it was getting worse and worse. And so that kind of scared me. And it was actually a different doctor. It was a, it was a sports medicine doctor who I was seeing about a running injury. I was a big runner at the time. And uh, I had runner's knee. Separate issue. But I was telling her, you know, she asked about if my knees ever buckle. And I said, yeah, when I'm laughing, but it doesn't have anything to do with my running. And she said, oh, I think I've heard of that. I think that's called cataplexy. So she actually wrote the word cataplexy down for me. And when I went home and I looked that word up and saw like it was this muscle weakness with emotions, and it was only found in people with narcolepsy. And I thought, narcolepsy? No. Like that's a joke about someone like falling asleep when they're standing or in the middle of a conversation. Like I don't have that. But then I looked at the real symptoms of narcolepsy and, you know, slowly realized, oh yeah, that sleep disorder I thought I had. And uh, connected the dots between those two symptoms and realized that's probably what I had. And I was right. And was able to get in with a, with a really good specialist in Boston and get the 24-hour sleep study and get diagnosed with narcolepsy. Many people with rare conditions talk about the diagnostic odyssey. They say that it takes many months, if not years, for the diagnosis to be established. Was that the case for you? You talk about seeing a primary care physician and then seeing the sports medicine doctor and then going on to somebody else. What was the time between you recognizing that there was a problem and them coming up with this diagnosis? I see it as two parts of the journey. The first was my own self-realization. And I went many, many years before coming to that realization. So my symptoms actually probably started when I was in college around 18 and I was diagnosed at 24. So you're looking about six years of symptoms. And I think that the, the cultural perceptions that everyone's tired, that we just have to fight through sleepiness. And that's just your own problem. You have to figure out <laughs> if you feel sleepy, you just need a Red Bull or you need a coffee or something like that. I, that I think was what led me to be so unaware of what was happening for so long. And then once I did realize, uh, then it was, you know, a pretty quick process. And I'm very grateful for, for my process being somewhat quick. I think because of that sports therapist who did recognize right away when I described part of my experience. So that was just over really less than a year, that whole process. But for many people, other people with narcolepsy or other sleep disorders, it, it can be a much longer journey of the sleepiness being misdiagnosis, depression, or other issues like that. So people get lost at many different points in the journey. And it can be on average 8 to 15 years for a person with narcolepsy to get a diagnosis. 
And they, they believe, I mean, with different sleep conditions, like sleep apnea is not a rare condition at all. It's quite common, but only about 25% of people in America with sleep apnea actually have a diagnosis. So it's not even in our case, necessarily always the fact that it's a rare disease, but possibly the invisibility of sleep conditions or uh, the way that we perceive sleepiness is somewhat, you know, like a, a sign of lack of willpower or something you're just supposed to power through that makes it a challenge. You make a really important point in that people are living with this condition and people around them are forming all kinds of judgments. So tell us a little bit about that. Here you are, 24, law student, clearly a very bright young woman, and people would have made assumptions about you because you had this strange habit of your knees buckling when you were laughing and other things. How were people expressing this impression of you? What was your idea about what they were thinking? For the most part, it was it was really more of my own experience. Only a very few times did people see that muscle weakness. It, it was actually so almost invisible at first that I thought maybe I, I felt very physical that my knees were getting weak, but uh, my friends didn't seem to see it. Or it could just look like a clumsy moment of like losing your grip on a glass for a half second, but you catch it. People weren't really seeing it so much. And, and the sleepiness was just so much more invisible or it was affecting my mood. Or, you know, during classes, I went to the bathroom, not because I had to go to the bathroom, but that's what people thought I was doing. And I was going to just slap myself and do jumping jacks and put cold water on the back of my neck. Probably things that people have always, you know, those kind of coping skills everyone does every once in a while, but I was doing that every class. And so my class notes would be, a mess. And so that didn't really impact anyone. No one around me really saw that. And so I guess like the hardest part for me was that it was earlier that year. It was it was around Thanksgiving time. I went back to school to study because it was the day after Thanksgiving and I wanted to get ready for my exams. And I thought, oh, I'm such a hardworking student. I'll be the first one in back in the library to study. And I ended up after about three hours of being in the library that day, realizing that I hadn't even gotten through like five pages of reading. And I couldn't figure out why, because I just thought I am the same Julie that was so determined. Uh, you know, I was always known for my hard work ethic in college. I was a varsity division one athlete, you know, got good grades, went to an Ivy League, like, and this was the same Julie. The same Julie was now in law school and wanted my first year to like, I want to be the top of the class. Yet something wasn't connecting and I was here sitting, you know, making my textbook into a pillow and I couldn't figure that out. And I just, honestly, I thought I'd lost my willpower and I wasn't really sure where my willpower had gone, but I just kind of gave up on myself. And that was really, really, really sad because I thought, who am I without my willpower? Like, that's how I was known for being determined and hardworking. And without that, I didn't know who I was. And But a lot of that, again, was so invisible that it almost just kind of goes under the radar and it, it, it didn't affect other people. And so that allowed me to almost let it get worse for so long without doing anything about it. It sounds exhausting knowing that you had this condition and going to the bathroom at each class and having to do jumping jacks just to keep yourself alert in your mind. That must have been exhausting. How did you manage to do all that and get through the classes, despite the fact that you had a condition that was very physical? 
Uh, well, barely, I guess. I mean, I got the worst grades of my life. My first year of law school, I got my first C. So it wasn't going well. <laughs> and I just feel so lucky that I did find the answers and find treatment. Because, you know, with treatment, I was... A, I was a, that's when I actually realized how bad it had gotten. It was a few months into starting treatment. I was in the library one night around 9pm. And I just remember looking around me and realizing I was still awake and it was 9pm. And I just started crying because it was only then like with my head that was working and, you know, mental connections were just happening. I could remember what I read. And that's when I thought, oh my God, I didn't remember what wakefulness felt like. It had been so long. I know people say sometimes like about having glasses, you know, when you get glasses and you think, oh, this is what it means to see. So it was at the, that point that I really saw like wakefulness in and of itself is like a form of freedom that I so slowly lost touch with that I had no, no idea how bad it was. And then just thinking how many other people are out there that might be experiencing something like that. And, it, you know, law school never, it was never great. It's not like I went from getting C's to A's. <laughs> I still kind of barely got by, but I did find my passion for health policy. And I think that really excited me and kept me awake to get through the last two years with the support of, of the school and the dean of the school who was very supportive and some great professors. So I, I never want anyone to think that I somehow, <laughs> you know, it was all better. It certainly wasn't. It was really hard to adjust, but with a lot of support, I made it through. What did your friends and family think? Suddenly, this was a different Julie, somebody who didn't appear to do the things that you were doing previously. Did they recognize the difference? Honestly, the most difference they recognized was I lost weight with the medications because that was almost the only outside sign that anything had changed. So I almost looked better. And so when people would bring that up, I would try to explain, well, actually, it's a sign I've been trying to adjust to the medications. They're making me sick. So, so much of it was actually so invisible that the harder part for me was trying to get them to think about it at all. Actually, like my family, I was, you know, being in your twenties, you're kind of on your own. I had a car, like no one questioned, like, should you be driving? Should you be in law school still? Like that there was never really these, it was just kind of assumed that life was just going to go on as it was before. And so what actually happened for me is really having to realize, oh, I have to find the time to maybe explain this to my friends and family. And I didn't have, I didn't really know how to communicate about it or trying to think about the bar exam and whether I wanted to be a lawyer. Like I had to bring that up. And thankfully I had a therapist who really helped me through those years of readjusting what I thought I wanted to do with my life in part because of narcolepsy, in part because of a new passion for um, advocacy and making change in a different way than maybe I had thought about my life before starting law school and before narcolepsy diagnosis. So I had to push a lot of the conversation forward with people around me because it's almost as if it was expected that everything was going to be the same, even though I now had a very serious neurological condition and a lot of treatment to be dealing with and so much had changed, but it hadn't really impacted others. Julie, you're quite different, aren't you? You're extraordinarily resourceful and you are clearly a very bright woman. What happens to the average person who's been living with this condition for this length of time? It, does the story always end well? I don't think there's any happy endings for anybody, even though I wrote a memoir and you have to have an end of a book that's, you know, happy ending sort of. But it, for everyone, there's ups and downs. And the reality is, I had a lot of advantages and a lot of privileges. 
including I, I didn't have good health insurance because I'd never been sick with anything in my whole life. So when I started to take all these treatments, the health insurance, you know, medication benefit was we'd expended it all in less than a month. So my dad was able to pay with credit cards to help me get those treatments that were six hundred to a thousand dollars a month for a few months until I was able to get better health insurance. So I know a lot of people aren't in that position. Or yeah, like being in law school and and being pretty articulate and you know, well-educated. So all those privileges were like very aware to me too, because it actually still brought me down lower than I'd ever been in my life. And so I, I guess I, I, I did know that other people might not have those advantages or privileges. So what was it like for them? I mean, it's a variety, right? Just like everything, there are so many factors that go into it. So many people, based on their personal circumstances, maybe they're not able to take the same treatments I am or they don't feel comfortable driving, or they're unable to work full-time. There's just so many different impacts on people in different ways, or their family life can be really impacted. So yeah, there's certainly... I, I never say that I would be a typical experience, but I don't think there is either. Fair enough. So talk a bit about your advocacy work. Uh, Where has that taken you and where to from here for people with sleep disorders? For me, when I looked at why I thought I couldn't have narcolepsy, it was because of Hollywood. I'd seen, I thought I'd seen movies, I guess, that had portrayed narcolepsy. And I didn't, none of those portrayals resonated with my personal experience. So I thought it was really important to share a real story of, of, of narcolepsy to open people's hearts and minds. To the real condition, because narcolepsy certainly wasn't boring. <laughs> you know, it's actually like fascinating. It was just really different than than the movies. And so, for me, you know, the first thing I did was work on writing a memoir about my experience and published that a few years after I graduated from law school. And after I had been in the sleep community for about five years and worked with different organizations as a volunteer, I eventually founded Project Sleep as a nonprofit to make sleep cool, raise awareness about sleep health and sleep disorders. And in doing that, storytelling still remains very central to the work I want to do. I think often in healthcare, there can be a strong gravitation to jargon words, definition words, medical jargon. And none of that resonates as well as stories, in my opinion. So now that I wrote my own memoir and share my own story, one of the programs that we do through Project Sleep is train other people with sleep disorders on how to share their story effectively. And so I think that's just a really important tool. And we do have a project on uh, even film and TV portrayals of sleep disorders and looking at the ones that are out there now, but then also hopefully working with Hollywood and the entertainment industry in the future to build better representations of what those conditions are, are really like. And I think that work is is kind of like under-recognized the importance of it. But if we realize like the media is how we got our perceptions of what these conditions are in the first place, then we should probably leverage media to build a brighter future, would be my opinion. Because they do just have a way of reaching people that we just can't do through PSAs or uh, or just, just sharing symptom information with people. It's just stories are so much more powerful. So 
that's a big piece of, of what we do with Project Sleep, in addition to advocacy efforts on Capitol Hill and, and stuff like that. So what is the size of the problem in the community? How many people have this condition at the extreme level that you're describing and at the, the milder level? And, and then ultimately, as you say, about one in four of us have some sort of a sleep disorder. So there's a whole spectrum, isn't there, of sleep disorders ranging from the sleep apneas and other things right through to narcolepsy, which is the extreme end of the spectrum, as it were. There's a lot of different sleep disorders and narcolepsy is actually more common than people think. It's one in every 2,000 people or 200,000 Americans that have it. And there's even more rare conditions like Klein-Levin syndrome, idiopathic hypersomnia, and then there's restless leg syndrome. Obviously, insomnia affects a lot of people, sleep apnea, and also circadian rhythm disorders, which I think will be a big part of the future as we better understand chronobiologies and, and people's circadian rhythms and people that have disorders of their circadian rhythms. So it's a really fascinating field. And it's, it's just, I guess, for me, the communications challenge of, of getting people to recognize the science, both of sleep in general, you know, that we, we had this society and this is the way I thought that sleep was not important. It was expendable and that my success was just based on like how much willpower I had or something. And now I realize, no, sleep is actually the science of it is incredible to understand that's how your body recharges for the day and does so many important processes. So there's helping people understand that. And then, of course, I think also making sure that the people that do actually have sleep disorders find their way to help, that they don't get lost in thinking, well, if only I do sleep eight hours a night or thinking it's their own personal problem. that they've somehow lost their willpower. It's just a character flaw, helping those people find other diagnosis. So yeah, it's one in five people, they say, have a chronic sleep disorder in the US, but probably less than 25% are diagnosed. So it's a huge problem. And isn't it true that, in fact, what this tells us is that we don't know as much about ourselves and our biology as we think we do. So when you look at the, the media portrayal of sleep. And as you say, the advice is almost fatuous. You need to do this, this, and this, get six to eight hours sleep a night, and all will be G, as they say. But it isn't like that, because our bodies are much more complicated than that. And we're only really beginning to understand some of the science around that. They always say sleep is not only the quantity, but the quality and the timing of it. So it's kind of this three-factor thing. And the science really, they really do know a lot, but I just don't think it has quite made its way into medical education or healthcare professional education, never mind the general public. And so it continues to be on the back burner in so many ways. People aren't asking about sleep in primary care appointments. It's not top of the radar. Then there's a lot of comorbidity issues. And so there's just a lot to take on. <laughs> and we do hope to get into more of the making sure people are getting screened, using technology appropriately to get people screened uh, and into the right hands. But yeah, we do have, we have a, a long way to go. And isn't it a fact that really the people most likely to make a difference to patients with sleep disorders or in general to contribute to our well-being are patients themselves who have had the condition and can describe precisely what it's like to live with this and 
to dispel some of the myths that we so willingly relay in our consultations as doctors. That's a huge part of not only, you know, Project Sleep's mission, but I've just found that I don't know how patients ever left the conversation. Like, how did they ever get taken out of the conversation of how do we improve healthcare? How do we improve research? To think that research is like who decides what's important and what should be prioritized and that like patients' voices are so rarely included in that process from the early stages and patients are so rarely consulted along that research process and helping come up with solutions is a huge issue and something that I always am trying to get our sleep field to better understand because I think some fields are a little bit further along than ours and trying to be patient. I'm not a very patient patient. Um, So, you know, I, I really want that integration that patients, scientists, researchers, clinicians are all working together. So one of the first steps that we're doing at Project Sleep to try to do that and lead by example is creating a expert advisory board. A lot of nonprofits have medical and scientific advisory boards, and then they have separately patient advisory boards. So to me, that's kind of a little bit like you're sitting at the kids' table or you're sitting at a different table. And so I'm really excited to actually just make it an expert advisory board and and put everyone as equals, that everyone brings their expertise, uh, just to show by example. But we are, we're all always looking for collaborations for conferences and research projects where we bridge those gaps too and, and work together on solutions. So yeah, I mean, not only are patients, like you said, so important for raising awareness, but also I think for being the solutions across the board. Are there examples of where you feel that patients have steered the science or the scientists in a particular direction? Well, for example, in our field, we had a meeting with the FDA as part of their patient-focused drug development initiative. And it was one of the early FDA meetings where the FDA really invited patients to to ask them what they were looking for and what they wanted. And I remember when the FDA came to that question where they said, okay, what do you actually want to improve? And I I had to stop because I thought, oh my gosh, no one's actually ever asked me that. You just kind of go along with like, oh, oh yeah, this will be the next best treatment because that's what people are telling me. And so it was really interesting to listen to people's responses and brain fog and cognitive functioning really came to the surface of that discussion. So leaving that meeting, I thought that was a, a really important takeaway for our community to be talking about brain fog. And it's because it's not even listed as a symptom of the condition, but it's this huge part of the experience that people want help with. And so that's just one example. I also think this, the social aspect of living with conditions are so underrated and leaving patients out of the conversation because for me, the hardest part wasn't actually dealing with the symptoms. It was a lot of the stigma of narcolepsy, people like literally laughing in my face, finding out that I have a narcolepsy because it's one of the conditions that's in Deuce Bigelow, male gigolo, right? Even though it's just a very serious neurological condition, other things you don't think of as funny, but somehow narcolepsy had that stigma. And so Dealing with that for me was some of the hardest part of my experience. I think, you know, I didn't want to bother my neurologist with that. It's not something I need to, you know, I don't need to cry on my neurologist's shoulder. I need to cry on the shoulder of a therapist or meeting other people with narcolepsy was really helpful for helping me understand what the condition was and I didn't have to feel ashamed of having it. 
So I think that social experience is something that has been drawn out by patients really being part of the conversation and making sure that the the stigma can be addressed. It doesn't need to be the neurologist, but the neurologist can at least connect people to the organizations that host conferences, help them connect to other people and get the support they need. Because I think that actually ultimately improves the clinical outcomes as well. But it's not even about that. I think that they need to realize the social experience is almost just as important and sometimes even more important. So if you had a magic wand and you could determine what's going to happen next, what do you think you would be doing? I would probably be working with Hollywood to have a movie that is uh, much more, that's both interesting and exciting uh, and entertaining, but also educating people about what it's really like to live with a sleep disorder. That's probably if I had a magic wand. I don't think that'll be a reality (laughs) anytime soon necessarily, but I do have a, a lot of hope. I think as long as we continue to keep patients involved, that we can come up with better solutions together and better support people. I guess I I worry sometimes that people think of technology as the future and even some conferences as just be so focused on technology and how technology is just going to innovate everything. I think it has its place, but I I don't want us to lose sight of humanity and, and the importance of that we're all like at the, at the end of the day, like we have feelings and emotions and we need each other. We need that social support. And so sometimes maybe technology can help bring those pieces together. And social media has for sure helped a lot of people connect. But just focusing more on being human-centered, I think will be really, really helpful. I don't think it's possible, Julie, with you leading us that we will lose sight of the humanity. And as they say, if you can imagine it, then it can be done. And I can't see why your dream can't become a reality that someone listening to this conversation in Hollywood might say, that sounds like a great idea because we need to stop making fun of this condition. This is something quite significant that if we can get it right for patients with this condition, we can make it right for many others with what we are now defining as rare conditions, but we now recognize are not so rare because as we said earlier, we still don't know so much about the way that we are constructed and how we function that we have ignored some of the fundamental things about what it is to be human, including our relationship with sleep, as you've described. Julie Flygar, it's been an absolute honor speaking with you today. What you're doing is so important. And if anything comes at this, I hope it is a movie. Thank you. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.